Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And that's us at 3CR and it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett. And today, apart from Syria, I'll be speaking with someone from AFIDA, the Australian Trade Union Organisation, working with grassroots groups on the Thai-Burma border, and that's Katie Camarina. The second and final part of the interview about the history of Cuba to the second day with Professor Barry Carr from the Latin American Studies Institute at La Trobe University. And staying in that area, Brian McKinley will be talking about the history of Mexico. And as Chris said, the situation in the Middle East, including Syria with Dr. Tim Anderson and private prisons. All you probably didn't want to know about private prisons with Javendan Singh. And this was first broadcast on the sewer program on 3CR. But let's start off with Mr. Kevin Healy. A week, gentlemen, the when... Four o'clock, it's not too early to raise a toast. Nay, let's raise a stubby to Carlton United against evil workers and unfair work commissioner Val Gostin's nick-off picketers for their courageous stand against evil union bullying with this irresponsible dispute at Sea United against evil workers. Both supporting good, good workers who, as the True Blue Capitalist Review editorialised Thursday, just want to go to work. And would we believe, listener, these good, good workers who just want to go to work have been subjected to such vitriolic verbal violence as scab in a civilised society? Well, in a society where all but evil workers are civilised, who would have thought such remnants of when there used to be class struggle and class warfare could still exist? In a wise decision, Commissioner Gostin's nick-off picketers banned people who don't want to go to work from abusing people who just want to go to work. Although at this stage, sadly, scabby, an inflatable rat, has not been banned, banning the verbal intimidation based on an anti-bullying law brought in by the previous Socialist Party government, that great friend of workers. We all know the evil union, lazy, avaricious workers who don't want to go to work, don't want to go to work by having to apply for the jobs they were sadly let go from and reapply for the same job at a fraction of their wages and conditions when the contractor to see United Against involved, programmed for profit, just wants to strike a balance between the programmed profit bit and work agreed, as opposed to the non-greedy workers who just want to go to work. And as reflecting on our anger last week that we can't say what we feel about people we hate, this attack on our right to hate those who threaten our way of life, the same Capitalist Review editorial covered that ground most sensibly, that on one hand, not being able to call a scab a scab may be a contravention of that right of free speech to hate those we must hate. But how's this for logic, listener? Making racist hate remarks unlawful is unlikely to stamp out genuine racism and may even stoke it by suppressing free speech. 
But while they support free speech, calling someone a scab is laced with intimidation and implicit or even explicit incitement to violence. Freedom of speech should not extend to such incitement. Brilliant argument. Logic run riot. The usual go-to lawyers for the caring business class said using these laws to ban evil picketers is a good example of someone being creative and innovative in achieving that. So let's raise our stubbies, listener, and toast the United against Commissioner Goston's nick-off picketers and programmed for profit. Oh, and let's toast workers who just want to go to work without being intimidated by verbal violence in an abuse of freedom of speech. Thank goodness we've got the equal before the law law to protect such innocence. And thank goodness, thank goodness, the law applauds good caring employers who just want to sadly let go, cut wages by 65 or so percent and slash conditions. Nothing violent in that. But surely something has to be done about Scabby the Rat. Scabs don't deserve to have to confront Scabby every time they go to work because they just want to go to work. Sensible Scabs, happy to accept low, low wages and even lower conditions. Hate to make this so depressing today, but sadly it gets worse. This evil CFMEU official, well, we know the very name CFMEU and being a member of is synonymous with evil, this organiser was placed on a two-year bond and fined $1,000 on Friday for the most frightening intimidation of another person who just wants to go to work, just doing his job. When a fair work true blue Aussie jackboots con mission inspector walked onto the Barangaroo site in Sydney during a union blockade. This evil organiser grabbed a megaphone. Oh, listener, to what depths has evil sunk? Grabbed a megaphone and sang, Who let the dogs out? On those hate laws, the true blue Aussie dear baby Jesus lobby still wants those you can't say who you hate laws because the people you don't even deserve or don't even deserve to be here so feign sensitivity waived for this marriage equality plebiscite. Not that, as dear baby Jesus dedicated followers, they would ignore the love thy neighbour bit. It's just that there are certain people you don't want as neighbours. But the big worry is they mightn't get to the plebiscite in the first place so they can express their hatred, righteous, just hatred of non-neighbours. The dear baby Jesus followers tell us every single person who voted in that recent farce went there to ensure we had a plebiscite. The plebiscite apparently the only reason they voted, front of mind. And the bloody long-haired cobby lot want an undemocratic solution like allowing Parliament to vote on marriage equality. This is a matter the people should decide based on the balanced, sensible arguments we will contribute to expose the sinful, pagan, evil life of these vile threats to social order to the dear baby Jesus Christian family in which uppity women know their place, they spit, or sorry, express with Christian gentility. Uh, then when the little bald-headed bloke who used to be Big Supremo in the last Dark Ages just walked into Parliament and changed the wording to express expressly, marriage can only be equal when it's between a man and a woman, why didn't that require a, a plebiscite?
because he was speaking for the dear baby Jesus. That's obvious, you commie clot, which is a despicable threat like you would understand if you would only accept the dear baby Jesus into your miserable life and love thy neighbour. Notice this Catholic priest in country New South Wales sent a thoroughly researched article to parents at the parish school telling them IVF-conceived children were born out of sin. Obviously a revelation from the dear baby himself showing there are good between a man and a woman and evil mortal sin between a man and a woman. That priest should get on swimmingly with that one notion appalling Hoonstone bloke who knows scientists have no idea what they're talking about. Turning to that lot's equal marriage yet, uh, sorry, marionette, never one to miss a photo op, big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull turned up on the top step as Troubler was his Olympic athletes alighted. Imagine facing allegations you'd underperformed, because we're Troubler Aussie and we should win everything. People who tried their guts out, pilloried because someone or someone's was stroke were better facing that than getting off the plane and the first thing you see, it's nightmarish. But at least Malcolm was honest. Compared to my performance, he told them, your performance was stellar. Which was reassuring as long as they didn't delve too deeply into his performance. Bringing us to our week that was nutritional health hint of the week. Notice Domino's fat and salt pizzas reckons that within a year or two, robots will be delivering its proud products. And our obvious health hint would be a lot better off eating the robot. The move has been propelled by a ruling that Domino's fat and salt pizza workers, quote, were missing out on as much as $32 million a year in unpaid penalty rates for weekend and night shifts, presumably not individually, an agreement concocted, surprise, surprise, with that doyen of working-class solidarity, the Shopping the Workers' Union, but having to pay the correct rate was described as facing a wages blowout. In other words, the problem lies fairly and squarely with workers expecting to be paid. Thus, the need to get rid of the workers and come up with nutritional, tasty robots. And as the government and the socialist opposition get together to see if they can overcome their chasmic philosophical and economic differences over slashing the doll and pension bludges doll and pension so we can do what the economy needs like slashing taxes for those who generate wealth in this society, good to see economic guru Scuttlebeam more less than launch an attack on the rich. There are taxpayers and non-taxpayers he had the rich shaking in their boots. Speaking of shaking in their boots, passengers on that US of the UN of the US of the world jet when an engine blew up and fell off. The airline spokesperson was pretty spot on after the pilot managed to land it safely at the nearest airport. It was due to a mechanical fault, he informed us, and I thought, yeah, the engine, the engine blowing up and falling off could be called a mechanical fault. And finally, bit surprising, as True Blue Aussie just loved this white, true blue country fascist got together Sunday to protest over evil Muslims being allowed to live here, bit surprising, given we know from reliable sources like the fascists themselves and Lord Rupert of Wapping and the sorry, the constabulary, that violence at these events is always instigated by the left anti-fascist thugs on the peace-loving gentle fascists. That when the long-haired commie wouldn't work and an iron anti-fascist lot didn't show up, 
they, they beat the proverbial out of each other. Good afternoon. And thanks once again to Mr Kevin Healy. And if you'd like to hear more of Kevin, tomorrow's the time between 9 and 10 with City Limits. We turn now to history with historian and author Brian McKinlay. Ken, I, I thought today I might look at a country that's got a lot of publicity recently and uh, it, it's a very important place, and that is Mexico, and some of the publicity that the Mexicans are getting are due to the, to the awful Donald Trump, who, like most fascists of his kind, rather likes to pick on racial minority. If you think about it, Mexico is sort of Donald Trump's version of Hitler's Jews. This is a characteristic of fascist regimes to pick on unpopular racial minorities. And, of course, the Hispanics are a very large minority indeed in the United States. They now make up about 12% of the population, and the bulk of them are Mexicans, not all. Many of them are Cubans in Florida. But the Mexicans come across the border at the rate of about a thousand a day, about a third of a million a year. This coming elections, they will make up in some places as much as 20% of the voting force. Oddly enough, Donald Trump has picked a group of people who have been pretty much politicised by his attacks on them and his mad scheme to build a great 3,000-mile wall across the border between Mexico and the United States. If you think of the size of Mexico, 3,000 miles is about the size of a wall from here to central Queensland. It's the equivalent of something about the size of the Great Wall of China, and that's through a remarkable variation of country between the two nations. He also says he'll deport about 11 million illegal immigrants. What happens, of course, is these immigrants have been coming for many years and are illegal, but have been allowed, in many cases, to stay in the United States. Sometimes they're caught and sent back and have another go and make it the second or third time. Some of them die in the deserts. We stayed for a while in Phoenix, Arizona, which is quite close to the Mexican border. And there's a tragic little museum there, bits and pieces and photographs and things by Mexican families who died in the pitiless summer weather in the deserts of Arizona. And Arizona has desert more pitiless than anything you'd find in Australia, just absolute rock and stone and sand. Mexico, of course, is inhabited by a range of people who, the present Mexican population, are a racial mixture of people who were uh, have both what I'd call Indian and Spanish ancestry and many other European nations and indeed some Asian nations, have provided immigrants over the centuries to Mexico. So Mexicans come in a considerable variety of appearances, but basically when you see them, they're a dark-skinned people speaking Spanish, though many of them also speak the Indian languages, uh, which go back into antiquity. The population is about 100 million, which is about twice the population of Britain. Mexico in size would 
taking much of eastern Australia, it would stretch from northern Queensland to Tasmania. So it's a big country and every kind of climate zone. In the far north, it's much desert along the American border. That turns into considerable mountain ranges in central Mexico, a great series of plateaus. Then in southern Mexico, you have a quite different region of subtropical and tropical forests which cover great areas. A big province called Chiapas, which borders on Guatemala and Central America, that's a very different country. And then, of course, it, it fronts the Pacific Ocean on one coast and the Atlantic Ocean in the shape of the Gulf of Mexico on the other. And there are mountain regions where you have quite cool climates. Uh, in modern times, quite a few Americans have retired to Mexico because it has a cheaper cost of living. If you were trying to live on a modest American pension and you liked Mexico and you had experience of it, you might move and live there as some Americans do. Mexico has a population, as I said, about 100 million, of whom about half live below the poverty line. On the other hand, it has more millionaires per 100,000 of the population than the United States. A man called Carlos Slim, for instance, is a millionaire owner of the media, a kind of Rupert Murdoch, if you know what I mean, if that's not too awful to contemplate. He's a Mexican Murdoch, much loved by the conservative political forces, and he dominates radio, television, and the print media. Mexico has a long history, and I would categorize it in two or three areas or time zones. Human beings have lived in Mexico way back into prehistoric times, and from about the time of, uh, of the Roman Empire in Europe, uh, although the Romans knew nothing about the Americas, or did the Mexican Indian people know anything about Europe? But in southern Mexico, a people called the Mayas, an Indian people, they started to develop a religion, a particularly brutal one, based on human sacrifice to the gods. And these sacrifices of the human heart were carried out on stone pyramids, which they built. Quite um, elaborate structures. Ceremonies took place on the top tier of the pyramids, and the bodies of the victims, minus their hearts, were thrown down the pyramids and cleaned up at the end of the day. The hearts were offered to the gods in a bonfire on top of the pyramids. Now, Mexico is a country that is prone to natural disasters. The whole country is an earthquake zone. These natural disasters, as well as things like cyclones, prompted the idea that the gods were dangerous and vengeful. And the Mexican priesthood developed, amazingly, a very accurate calendar. They followed the movement of the planets and the stars. It's a good climate for that. And out of that came uh, a belief in and uh, a knowledge of uh, things like eclipses of the sun and moon, which they believed were a warning that the gods were going to do something quite terrible. 
And these sacrifices in the Maya religion became part of the culture. And they built these pyramids all over southern Mexico uh, in a part called Yucatan. As well as that, of course, uh, the Mayas were pretty interested in plants and other things which they grew. And Mexican culture was based, in a sense, on the good luck to have a crop of cereal in the form of corn. Mexico provided the world with a remarkable variety of vegetable products. They grew corn, they discovered wild plants which they domesticated, and used uh, two of them, chili and tomatoes, have conquered the world. It's hard to imagine cuisines anywhere without tomatoes, especially Italian cuisine. But they also had other, other crops as well as corn, tomatoes and chili. They had beans, which were a major factor in a fairly low protein diet. And two remarkable products, again, that conquered the world, vanilla, a bean growing wild in the jungles, and cocoa. Now, cocoa was the drink of the elites, drink of the priesthood and the emperor of the Maya religion. And they gathered the cocoa pods from the jungle where the trees grew wild. And when the uh, later chocolate spread around the world, as did vanilla, and often together, by the way, so Mexico had these remarkable products, and if you've eaten Mexican food, you'll know that corn used to make pancakes called tortillas are the basic food of Mexico, often filled with beans, meat, of course, nowadays, and a variety of vegetables. The Mayas were overwhelmed and succeeded by another equally violent group called the Aztecs, and the Aztecs had much the same religion. Much of Mexico's Indian people, especially those who lived in the jungles, never became domesticated in the sense of living in cities, but were overwhelmed by the powerful Aztec tribe who virtually colonised all of the other tribes and were hated by them. If you've ever seen a film, and it's been on recently on ABC again, made by an Australian, Mel Brooks, called Apocalypto. If you see it advertised, watch it. it it's a remarkable film set in pre-Spanish Aztec Mexico and done in the language of the Aztecs. It gives you a great idea of the lifestyle of the Mexican people before the Spanish came. And it ends with the arrival of the Spanish. In the 1500s, the Spanish, through Columbus, with his discovery of the New World, he thought he'd gone to India, of course, so he called the islands the Indies. And what we know as the West Indies have nothing to do with India, of course. But Columbus went back to Spain and told of these vast new countries where the most important product in his mind was gold. The Aztecs knew how to mine gold and they had made all sorts of objects from gold. The Spanish came and arrived in Mexico and found their way overland, amazingly, a small party of only a few hundred on horseback, made their way to the capital of Aztec Mexico, 
We're situated on a lake in the centre of the country, which is where Mexico City stands today. In the process, by the way, they took the emperor prisoner and held him hostage and eventually executed him. But the Aztec Empire proved unable to resist the Spanish, who had two weapons that the Aztecs didn't have. One of them was firearms, and the other was the horse. No animals had ever been domesticated, and there were no horses in North America, naturally, though with the centuries, uh, Europeans brought the horse to North America. And eventually, the Spanish conquered Mexico, conquered the Aztecs, imposed Roman Catholicism on them, and destroyed the pretty terrible religion. But between them, force of arms and the Catholic Church helped to subjugate the Indian people. And the Spanish came. Lots of young Spanish men came to Mexico, as they did to Brazil with the Portuguese. They set up great pastoral empires, built what they called haciendas, which are what we'd see as cattle stations. And these great buildings housed the families that these young men created, often out of having married or lived with Mexican Indian women. So you had a new population of half Mexican, half Spanish children. And these great haciendas became like feudal Europe. The Indian people who worked on them didn't get paid, but they had a bit of land where they could farm and grow food for their families and then work for the great landowners. Mexico became very much in the 16th, 17th and 18th century like feudal Europe. It extended farther north than it does now and took in places like California and Arizona as part of Mexico. Now, in the 19th century, Mexico was uh, the subject of much argument between the Mexican, uh, Mexican uh, rulers and the European powers. At the time of Napoleon, the French invaded Spain and the Spanish royal family fled. And Mexico then was uh, part of the Spanish Empire. But the Mexican ruling class, who were Spanish basically, decided that they could do without a king and queen in Spain and proclaimed Mexico's independence. And early in the 19th century, about 1810, Mexico became a republic and remains so today. But other countries, the French had ideas of annexing Mexico at one time, and the same happened with the United States, which fought a war with Mexico in the 19th century and seized California, Arizona, New Mexico as part of the United States. So Mexico was a, a land of contention. And then in the late 19th century, one of the endless coups among the ruling elites, the wealthy landowners, that is, by a man called Porfirio Diaz, his critics called his government a diaspotism, like despotism. And he reigned for nearly 30 years. And though he was a brutal dictator, he was a Mexican dictator, of course, Diaz set about modernizing Mexico in his view. He had a mixed relationship with the United States. He made a famous comment once. He said, poor Mexico, so far from God and so close to the United States of America. 
Well, in 1911, a group of liberal reformers staged a revolution against Diaz, who was overthrown. Two men, brothers, became prime minister and president of the new supposedly democratic Mexico in 1911, only to be assassinated themselves a few months later when Diaz and his supporters tried to make a comeback. Mexico was plunged into a civil war, basically pro or anti-Diaz. He'd fled to Europe, by the way, but his family still were around. The civil war went from 1911 to 1920. So while Europe was seeing the First World War and the Russian Revolution, Mexico was consumed by a terrible conflict, which eventually ended in a victory for what I'd call the democratic forces. From 1920 onwards, Mexico became a kind of democracy. In the 1930s, it had a very left-wing government for a while, which nationalised the considerable oil industry, caused great trouble with the United States, who always uh, involved themselves in Mexico's problems. And it was at about that time that the flood of Mexicans making their way into the United States, notably California, where very soon they will make up majority of the population, by the way, these people were a, a vital workforce for groups in America. And even today, the Mexicans who come across and who are much slandered by Trump work in industries which Americans don't want to do, like picking vegetables and doing all sorts of hard manual work. If, as we have done, if you travel <clears throat> around the American West, and uh, we've been to California a number of times, you'll see Mexican men and women doing all those jobs, sweeping streets, working in uh, shops, doing all sorts of essential jobs, but pretty low-paid jobs. And uh, these people have been coming for a long while. And, of course, uh, their children, over several generations, are American citizens. And uh, Donald Trump can do nothing about that. And they are becoming a very powerful political force in the American West. For instance, in states like New Mexico and Arizona, which were once pretty much conservative cowboy states, and overwhelmingly they vote for the Democrats. The Mexicans also tend to be quite strong supporters of trade unions. And so that's brought them into the Democratic Party's hub, if that's the word, and the result is all over the West, old Republican strongholds are beginning to collapse, notably California. California has provided two Republican presidents in my lifetime, Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan, and on both occasions, California was massively Republican. But in the last three or four elections, the Democrat vote in California has run as high as 60% which is what the polls are saying, by the way, will happen with Trump. They now have a Mexican-Hispanic-American mayor of Los Angeles. All over the American West, as far north as Colorado, the Hispanics are changing the political climate. Oddly enough, the Republicans missed the chance with a candidate called Rubio, who is a a Cuban-American from Florida. Now, Rubio was a pretty good candidate, albeit conservative. He would have made a formidable opponent for Hillary Clinton, but Trump and his mates did Rubio in. The chance of a 
a Hispanic candidate for the presidency is lost for the Republicans. It may be in the future that we'll see a Democrat uh, after Hillary Clinton, whom I think will win, and I hope will win, because Trump is unthinkable, uh, we'll see a Democrat candidate who will be Hispanic and will complete the cycle of Mexican involvement with the United States. Uh, oddly enough, the present candidate called Kane, uh, who is Hillary's vice presidential candidate, he's of Irish background and he comes from Virginia, but he's had quite a lot of time in his life working, he's a lawyer of course, working for a legal firm that does human rights work in Mexico, and he's a, a fluent Spanish speaker and is pretty good choice for Hillary as a vice president because he can speak in Spanish to this large Mexican Spanish population on the rolls now. Uh, I think Trump, with all his threats of building walls and sending people back, cannot do. In fact, Trump has alienated. I've seen polls which show that less than 5% of Hispanics will vote for the Republicans. And I can't imagine why they would do that. But the relationship between America and the United States, that is, and Mexico goes back a very long way. And it's never been a loving relationship, partly because American capitalism, right from the beginning, and certainly in the last century and a half, has invested great sums of money into Mexican industries. The Americans in the 19th century built the Mexican railway network. American capital and expertise flooded into Mexico and made huge profits out of the Mexican people. Those American companies and industries have been long established but have never been loved by the Mexicans. The Mexicans, given the problems at home of poverty, uh, the drug industry and all of those related matters have now taken it upon themselves to move into the United States where even for low-paid workers, the jobs are more plentiful and wages are higher than Mexico where the wage structure is quite low. Today, the whole relationship between uh, Mexico and the United States has emerged as a major political uh, event in the United States, along with the industrial links between the two countries, because of what's called NAFTA. The North American Free Trade Agreement has opened up Mexico to send its goods into the United States without tariffs. This has led to a great criticism of Hillary Clinton's husband's government in the turn of the century, when Bill Clinton pushed this through, only to see NAFTA help destroy, as free trade agreements often do, American industries in favour of low-wage industries in Mexico. So there are all these complicated matters lying between the relationships of the two countries. IPAN is inviting you to attend its anti-war conference and join the Close Pine Gap protests from the 26th of September to the 2nd of October in Alice Springs. Pine Gap facilitates US war activities, international espionage and their killer drone program. It's time to stop the drift to war and free Australia from US military bases. For more information on the IPAN conference, go to ipan.org.au and for protest details, see closepinegap.org. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. 
And before that important message, you heard from historian and author Brian McKinlay. Last week, Professor Barry Carr from the Latin American Studies Institute at La Trobe University spoke about the early years of Cuba. We continue now with events leading up to the revolution in 1959. The Cuban Revolution was on New Year's Day in 1959. How many years before that it had been building up to that? Well, some Cubans would say that, you know, that the whole of the previous 60, 50, 60 years, ever since Cuba's failed independence or the independence that was stymied and neutralized by U.S. intervention, that that really is the, the full background. But the short-term Cuban revolution began only in the early 1950s with the uh, formation of, a, of an underground revolutionary movement associated with Fidel Castro, known as the July 26th movement. And first came to, to prominence with a spectacular but failed attempt by these young workers and students, for the most part, and young lawyers and professionals, to seize the main military barracks in the eastern part of the island at Moncada, and that was in 19. 19- 53. So beginning then, uh, and with ups and downs in terms of who was involved and whether they were in jail or out of jail, a very large movement uh, of resistance to Batista began. And there were guerrillas fighting in the mountains eventually. There were students uh, very active in the uh, main cities and university towns. And there were the labor movement came back alive again, and sugar workers played an increasingly important role. It was by Christmas Day in the end of 1958, it was very, very clear that Batista's future was not uh, terribly rosy. But it was, a, it was a massive movement involving a whole variety of groups, not just the, the group immediately around uh, Castro and Guevara. And it wasn't a socialist revolution, was it? Well, no, the movement was, it was because there was a variety of groups involved, including some Catholic student movements, which are actually very important in the resistance process. The movement never, uh, publicly at any rate, before 1959, they never uh, had a, a program that you would call sort of socialist. It was, in many, some respects, anti-capitalist, because nobody really, even the mildest political reformer, I think, had to recognize that that Cuba's economic structure was so unjust that uh, minor tinkering with the old system was not going to be sufficient. But uh, the groups who could have articulated a kind of socialist vision were relatively weak uh, in the those early years of the Cuban Revolution before the taking of power, and most particularly the Cuban Communist Party. There was a Communist Party, had a different name. It was semi-legal, forced underground during the Batista years. Uh, initially, the communists in Cuba were very suspicious of Fidel Castro and his followers. They regarded them as petty bourgeois, romantic rebels who didn't have any links with the working class at all. And in fact, they were quite hostile until a year and a half before the final victory when a section of the Communist Party finally came on board and established an alliance with Fidel. Can you explain how important the Catholic involvement was and and why? 
In the struggle against Batista between, say, 52 and, and, and 59, there was a Catholic presence in the resistance movement, particularly built around a group of students you know, at the University of Havana. So that was really quite, quite, that was quite important. But overall, one of the things that distinguishes Cuba or distinguished Cuba from the rest of Latin America was that the Catholic Church, while it was the dominant church in Cuba, was very weak. It had very weak roots in the country, and that has to do with a number of features of Cuban history. The, Cuba was a colony of Spain much longer than any other part of Latin America, and when independence came, this Catholic Church in Cuba at the end of the 19th century took the side of Spain rather than of Cubans, which is a very different to what happened in the rest of Latin America. So you could say that was a, a real black mark against the Catholic Church. And then when U.S political and economic and cultural influence really grew in the 20th century. There was a religious component of that. Even much earlier than in other parts of Latin America, Protestant, non-Catholic denominations began to grow very uh, substantially. So for those two reasons, really, um, the Catholic Church, while it was present in Cuba, its roots were very, very, very weak. And that, I think, explains why uh, when, when the revolution happened and Cuba became radicalized very quickly, the church was unable to play a kind of counter-revolutionary role, which it had done and would have done and did, did, has done in other parts of Latin America. And what was the state of the economy and social institutions when the Cuban revolutionaries took over? In January 1959, yeah, well, in the those... next picture, I mean, the, obviously the, the conventional story you get from Cubans today, I mean, members of the Communist Party and Cuban government is that everything was, that Cuba was really in terrible uh, shape, uh, etc. And, and in some respects, I think they're, they're right. It was a mixed story. I mean, there certainly was enormous poverty and inequality, particularly in rural areas. That was the striking feature of, of Cuba's economy before 1959, that this other, in this other otherwise apparently prosperous country um, based upon sugar, the sugar industry created misery and up to four or five, sometimes six months of unemployment uh, in the countryside during the so-called dead season when the sugar mills no longer were grinding sugar. So rural poverty and unemployment. On the other hand, if you compared it, Cuba with other parts of Latin America, in some respects, you know, it had a very prosperous, rather dependent on the U.S. middle class. It was a very modern and a very modern economy, if you think of things like the development of the media. I mean, Cuba was one of the first, I think it was the first country in Latin America, just pipped Mexico in developing a television in 1950. The urban economy the, uh, looked very, very good on the, on the surface. But below that, there were the usual problems of poorly paid people of... Uh, Cuban domestic industry struggling uh, to make a go because uh, so much of the country's industry and its, its international trade was very dependent upon the United States. So it was a mixed, mixed story, a relatively prosperous urban uh, economy, uh, sort of a, a self-confident in many ways uh, middle class, but tremendous rural poverty, uh, especially in areas where the sugar industry dominated. And did that upper and middle class group of people stay or did they move to the US? In the early years of the Cuban Revolution, there was something that happened that I call the export of the counter-revolution. In other words, for a variety of reasons, a large part of Cuba's middle class, uh, its economic and its professional middle class, left the country. 
they left the country because they thought that there was no future for them in Cuba because it was going to the dogs, going moving to the left. In other cases, they thought that the, their departure would be a temporary affair, that the Americans would eventually intervene to kind of get rid of these nasty revolutionaries. After all, that was something the U.S. had done anyway many, many times before. So Cuba lost this uh, segment of the population, which had a lot of um, effects on, on the country, both positive uh, and negative. The positive effects were that in Cuba, since the potential supporters of a counter-revolution were no longer there, they were in Miami or elsewhere, this gave, I think, the early years of the Cuban Revolution uh, a bit of a respite in spite of what was happening in international politics. But the negative side of the, of the story, of course, was that Cuba lost very quickly uh, a large part of its um, technical and managerial elite. It lost most of its doctors and engineers. So, uh, And at a time when the new revolutionary government, of course, had a huge agenda of trying to push through political and economic and social cultural reforms. So those early years were years when if you had any skills, you got promoted very quickly and tens of thousands of Cubans were sent overseas, mostly to Eastern Europe and the then Soviet Union, to be trained as doctors and, and engineers. And of course, Cuba was a, a pawn in the battle between US and the Soviet Union in the Cold War. Yes, very, very, fairly soon Cuba, well, Cuba in a sense was pushed in the direction of, uh, to, of the Soviet Union. It wasn't, uh, I think, a case where uh, the Soviet Union really played much of a role initially in pushing the Cuban Revolution to the, to the left. Um, Cuba, Cuba made the movement rather than the, the Soviet Union. But certainly by the early 1960s, by 1961, when the U.S. and Cuba breaked diplomatic relations and economic relations had deteriorated, the economic and political and diplomatic relationship between Cuba and uh, the Soviet Union became absolutely fundamental for the success or the, the, the durability, the survival of the, uh, the Cuban Revolution, but at a cost, of course, and the cost you've pointed to with you know, Cuba becoming, as you say, a, a pawn really in uh, Soviet-U.S. relations, seen most clearly in the, um, the history of the missile crisis in 1962. Can you explain what happened in those months, weeks, days? Before the missile crisis, there had been this, the failed attempt by the United States to invade Cuba, uh, not with U.S. troops, but with a variety of forces, right-wing forces that you know, the CIA and the U.S. government had been forming and training uh, in Florida, and, but especially in Guatemala. That happened, the Bay of Peaks happened in 1961. Cuba had already ta had a taste of U.S. intervention and invasion, uh, knew that the prospect of an actual U.S. invasion of Cuba using U.S. troops and your U.S. air power was definitely not something that could be discarded. And that led to you know, discussions between the Soviet Union and Cuba about ways in which the, the danger could be, could be dealt with. And the Soviets, I think, prevailed, although with Cuban, I think, support, uh, prevailed with, along the, uh, with the plan to place missiles in Cuban territory as an attempt to balance what were hundreds, if not thousands, of missiles and, uh, that were stationed by the United States uh, all around the Soviet Union, but most especially in Turkey, which was a member of, of NATO. So you've got the, the famous story of the uh, missile crisis as the U.S. discovers the uh, presence on Cuban territory of 
so the, uh, the early stages of uh, the building of uh, missile sites, uh, missiles, leading to a confrontation between the two superpowers, um, which led eventually to uh, a kind of compromise between the two, although that's not the conventional narrative that most of the older listeners uh, here would, would remember. I mean, the Soviet Union withdrew its missiles from Cuba. The United States also agreed to not invade Cuba and to dismantle some of the apparatus around which the invasion plans had been built. So that was not given publicity at the time. But it was a powerful reminder to Cubans about how, in a sense, impotent they were. I mean, they, um, I think the Cubans certainly uh, wanted Soviet missiles to be present in, in, in Cuba as a kind of form of protection, a shield. But um, when it came to the crunch, uh, what counted uh, was not the voice of um, the Cuban political leadership, but the concerns, geopolitical and otherwise, of the Soviet leadership. And I don't think you can talk about the development of the revolution without talking about the international aid it gave to many developing countries. The Cuban revolution has always had a very strong internationalist uh, orientation right from the very beginning uh, and uh, it's it's no accident really it's sort of a small country situated literally 90 miles away or part of it anyway 90 miles away from the world's most powerful country uh, with a long history going back over a hundred years of of uh, engagement with experience of, of hegemonism of the dominance of the, of the United States as a, a colonial, neo-colonial power. So it's not surprising that Cuba, for example, saw the Vietnam War as something that was very close to it. Not because the Vietnam was close. You couldn't get a, a further away country to Cuba than Vietnam. But I think the Cubans saw Vietnam as a kind of sister country with the same kinds of problems. Uh, in the early 1960s, uh, Cuba certainly embraced with enthusiasm, a whole series of new revolutionary movements all over Latin America that tried to mimic the Cuban experience by developing armed struggle in the countryside. And for the most part, those attempts everywhere in Peru and in Venezuela and so on were all failed. But it was a sign, I think, of Cuba's the Cuban Revolution's commitment to um, promoting radical revolutionary change in Latin America. And the other area where Cuba was its internationalism was seen then was was in Africa because again the Cubans played a very important role in supporting progressive causes in some parts not all parts of South Africa and certainly played a hugely important role in fighting in uh, Angola and Namibia especially against the, the Portuguese uh, and no doubt at all but that the fall of the apartheid government and regime in South Africa would not have been possible without uh, Cuban military and political and economic uh, support in Angola. So that's an important part. And then we have the so-called soft diplomacy. I mean, Cuba's internationalism is not just about sort of supporting revolutionary movements and providing soldiers. It was also about what nowadays is called soft diplomacy, the diplomacy of sending medics and doctors and so on. Cuba's always punched well above its weight in, in this area, and it would be possible to, to summarize the sheer volume and the size of Cuba's medical uh, solidarity all over the world, including in some places that are not that far away from Australia. I'm thinking here of Timor, for example, East Timor, uh, where Cuba's played a hugely important role medically, but also in areas like literacy work 
and that's here in Australia as well. And then, so the Aboriginal communities with Aboriginal projects, Cuban literacy methods and so on have played quite an important role. And then, of course, came the end of the Soviet Union. Huge change for Cuba. Yes, came the end of the Soviet Union and of the so-called people's democracies of Eastern Europe, uh, the communist states of Eastern Europe, which were all together fundamental trading partners for Cuba. And that was uh, an absolute bolt from the blue, a nightmare for, for Cuba, because suddenly, between about 30 and 40 percent of Cuba's economy collapsed. I mean, the trading relations were broken. Cuba had to go undergo yet again the experience of having factories that didn't work because the spare parts weren't available anymore. That was the first experience they had in the 60s when they couldn't make toothpaste anymore because the U.S. technology had gone. Now they had to, the same problem uh, in the 1990s with plants and manufacturing and trade relationships that no longer worked with the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. It was a major crisis for the Cuban economy and society, and it led the Cubans to take a whole series of emergency measures, which they collectively labelled as necessary for their special period, special period in time of peace, which was uh, the name they gave to uh, a whole series of projects which were designed to try and safeguard the educational and the health and the social achievements of the Cuban Revolution at a time when the trade relationships and access to capital and to resources like petroleum and so on were very, very, very scarce. And it's during this period that we see the beginnings of the economic transformation that has grown apace in, in recent years. For example, a decision made shortly after the collapse of the Soviet Union to push tourism to make tourism a real motor of development in Cuba. And now we move on to the new phase with Obama pushing for partial rapprochement. But could I ask you first, Barry, about your interest in Cuba when you first went there and and your travels through those years in Cuba? Well, I've always been interested ever since I was a student back in Britain in the mid and late 1960s in, in things Cuban. I like a lot of young lefties were, uh, and still are, I guess. So the Cuban Revolution was really a, a source of absolute fascination and inspiration to many, many, many people. When I became an academic and then became to Australia in 1972 to teach, I started teaching courses on Cuban history and for over 20, 20, 30 years, but I, but I had never been to Cuba. I was primarily interested in and, and traveled to and worked and lived in other parts of Latin America especially in Mexico, but I never went to Cuba. I don't know why, but I just didn't. And then that changed in, in 1990 or 1989, 1990, when I actually developed a research project on history of workers and unions and labor in the sugar industry. So I started going to Cuba. And so my first encounter with Cuba was at this most difficult and awkward period. I was in Cuba when the Soviet Union was collapsing. And so I lived through, even as a rather privileged foreigner, I lived through those terrible years when people couldn't cook properly because there wasn't enough sort of gas or wasn't enough oil and you couldn't be sure that uh, there'd be electricity for most of the day and the buses and the cars stopped functioning because there wasn't enough petrol and so everybody went decided, had to learn to ride a bike but not everybody knew how to ride a bike well so there were lots and lots of terrible accidents. That was the period when I uh, began to work and to spend time in Cuba and since then I've been backwards and forwards like a yo-yo 
uh, most recently just uh, just a, a month ago. And what were the people there telling you about their thoughts for the future? On this last trip, I was there just very quickly, just barely a week, so I can't claim to speak <laughs> on behalf of any particular segment of the population. I think most Cubans I spoke to, and it's a pretty wide selection of people, they were mostly very, obviously very excited and hopeful about this new stage in the U.S.-Cuban relationship because all Cubans, regardless of their views, see the United States as, as fundamental. I mean, it's a big country. It's historically, culturally had an enormous relationship with Cuba. And in any kind of normal world, uh, there would be close relations culturally, socially, economically, politically, between Cuba and the United States. Not, not to mention the fact that there are millions of Cubans and people of Cuban origin there. So there's a lot, there was a lot of, I think, uh, excitement, a lot of expectations opened up by the resumption of diplomatic relations, because that's really what's happened. It's really a resumption of diplomatic relations. It's quite dramatic in itself. But uh, in the economic sphere, the embargo uh, declared by the United States, uh, the uh, on relation, economic relations with Cuba, Cuba is still in existence. And so the excitement and enthusiasm that I sensed uh, amongst Cubans was always tinged by you know, an acknowledgement that only part of the uh, normalization had happened yet, that there still were uh, enormous steps that had to be had to be taken. But I think people's aspirations have been aroused, their expectations have been uh, raised. Um, people, I think, want to see change within Cuba of all kinds, not very specifically. I and mean, people want to see, they want to have a, an easier life that's less marked by austerity and shortages. Uh, they want a bit more comfort. Uh, and I think they, many people would like to travel with currently while they can travel. Now I'm able to get passports very easily, which wasn't always the case because financially it's not e easy for many people to uh, uh, to travel. So the, the expectations have grown, but I think looking back now, it's the second uh, coming up to the second anniversary of the um, the announcement that, that in December of 2014 that there was going to be a normalisation of relations. But you'd have to say that. Um, apart from the fact that there are embassies now in both Washington and in Havana, that uh, the scale of the economic relationship and the, uh, is, is still disappointing and the embargo is still there and still creating havoc for both sides, really, Cuba, obviously, but even for, you know, for U.S. exporters and people, entrepreneurs who want to become engaged in Cuba, find it life very, very difficult. And what could a new president mean for Cuba? We don't know, of course, who's going to win the elections in the United States. Uh, to some degree, it doesn't actually make a huge difference because what would really make a difference to the embargo, would lead to the end, an end to the embargo, is a radical change in the U.S. Congress because what happened in the 1990s was that the Republican right, with the support of some right-wing Democrats, rammed through a whole series of laws which made the embargo and many other aspects of the hostile relationship towards Cuba made them part of, of law which could only be changed by Congress. In other words, prevented 
presidents of the United States from using their executive authority, which is substantial, to rewrite or to overturn the policies. To that extent, it's, it's, it's true when Obama and others say that they want to get rid of the embargo, but they're prevented by a hostile Congress. So unless Congress changes its view, the embargo will still, still be intact. What may change, uh, what has been changing, is that even though Congress's approval is needed to end the embargo, there is still enough authority invested in the U.S. presidency for the embargo to be kind of nibbled away at, hollowed out from within. And that's what's been happening under, under Obama. The embargo is still there, but there are all kinds of in all kinds of ways. It's possible now to fudge some elements of that embargo. That could conceivably continue uh, in, uh, with the, the new Congress, but of course we don't know whether the Congress, the new Congress after November of this year is going to be more or less the same kind of Congress, or whether the Democrats will have more authority, or whether the Republicans are going to be sort of able to control one at least of those uh, two houses. So it's not really very clear. Finally, Barry, the US concentration camp on Cuba at Guantanamo Bay, how does that fit into everything? See, that's really right at the very back of all these stories. Uh, it's, uh, it doesn't get a lot of attention uh, as it should do because we've become so used to seeing it as a normal part of history that the U.S. has a military and naval base on Cuban territory and has had so since uh, 1905, 1905 to seven. The Cubans' official policy, and it has been expressed in recent negotiations with the United States, is that no regularization of normalization of relations with the U.S. can happen until the embargo is, is ended and until the United States leaves Guantanamo. It's important to make that distinction because a lot of people who don't understand this point. There's been calls, including by Obama himself, for the closing of what you describe as the concentration camp or torture camp, which exists within the base and which is... Uh, uh, which you know, horrendous crimes are being committed. But that's not the same as calling for an end to the base itself. It's very, very important. There's, I think, quite a lot of support in the United States for an end to the, uh, to the, the, the camp there. But it's much more difficult to get a voice in support of the end to the base. The Cubans push this line, but they don't give it priority because they know that, um, uh, that they have very little bargaining power on this. People have often asked me over the years, students, and so on, well, how come the Cuban Revolution, after the revolution of 59, how come the Cubans didn't simply march their troops into Guantanamo? It's on Cuban territory, etc. Well, I don't think that idea was ever thought of in, in Cuba, and I think for very good reasons. It would have provided uh, an obvious excuse for U.S. direct military intervention. So um, it is a sore, it's a permanent source, an permanent embar embarrassment, and a source of annoyance to Cubans and a reminder that they are still a plaything of the U.S. empire. That has to be addressed uh, at some point and not just in terms of the closing of the prison and of the torture facilities there. It's, it's completely an, an anachronism that uh, the United States has a military base on Cuban territory, although there are historical reasons why that happened. But that's absolutely um, is a no-no. And thanks to Professor Barry Carr from the Latin American Studies Institute at La Trobe University. And I believe the Institute also was celebrating their 40th birthday 
this year, the same as 3CR. And if you haven't tuned into the program station before, this is Tuesday Home Time. I'm Jan Bartlett and I'm here until 6 o'clock tonight. On 3CR, you could be listening digital. You could be listening 3CR 855 on the AM dial. You could be listening on your computer, 3cr.org.au, where the program streams for a week, or else you can have the program forwarded to your computer to be listened to at your leisure. You can find out both those ones there on 3cr.org.au. And if you'd like to hear more about Latin American issues, the program on Sunday is Latin American Update. It's on it from 10.30 till 11 every Sunday morning. Issues right around the, I was going to say the Caribbean, but it's South America, Latin America and also the Caribbean. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419 8377. 40 years of radical radio includes radical music. 3CR's Music Matters continues with this tradition every week by promoting and supporting live, independent Australian music. In November, Music Matters will be three years young and we'd love you to join us in celebrating our third birthday and 3CR's 40th birthday at a benefit gig at the Bella Union on Thursday, 3rd of November. A stellar lineup of artists who perform for Music Matters will be announced soon, so get out your diaries and lock in November the 3rd when we'll see you at the Bella Union with your dancing shoes on. For decades, people have been escaping from Burma only to end up in refugee camps or towns in Thailand along the Thai-Burma border, which has a substantial population of Burmese migrant and refugees, even today. AFIDA, Union Aid Abroad, has been involved in the area for many years and the current Thai-Burma Border Project Officer is Katie Camarena. When I spoke to Katie, I asked her first about the background to her interest and involvement with the Burmese people living in that border area. It began, I guess, really in 2009. I was looking for an internship or a placement to kickstart a career in international development. It was definitely an area of interest and an opportunity came up to work with an organisation called the Karen Women's Organisation, which is based in a small town along the border. So that's where I went for the first couple of months. And from there, my passion for working with the people and the vulnerable communities that are living along the Thai-Burma border 
grew quite substantially as I got to know people and uh, read a lot more about their personal stories and heard those stories in person. I think we need to go back a bit, don't we, and look at the history of why so many people are in those camps along the border. The situation on the Thai-Burma border is ongoing. The refugee camps have been in place for more than three decades now. In 1998, there was a big pro-democracy uprising in Burma, which saw a lot of people flee to the border region. Coming into Thailand, uh, initially the refugees were sort of housed in settlements along the border, up and down. About 1995 was when these settlements merged into large sprawling refugee camps, which still exist today after a few attacks on some of those settlements. I guess the situation has been ongoing since around 1949. It's one of the longest continuous civil wars in, I think, world history, along with the, the Tibet situation. It's, it's kind of similar in terms of the time frame. And where did you go after your initial time with the Korean Women's Association? Did you stay in the area? With the Korean Women's Organisation, I was there for about three months. During my time there, I was working on a report that was released in 2010 that was called Walking Amongst Sharp Knives, and it was basically the testimonies of Karen women who'd been appointed to the position of village chief. Traditionally, that was a role held by men, but the Burma army uh, was prone to execute the men, so they sort of changed it around a bit and thought if they put women in the position of village chief, then they were less likely to be killed. So it was through reading these personal stories of these women that kind of kept me in the border area and kept me interested in especially the plight of women and children. After May Sariang and working with Korean Women's Organisation, who I'm still closely involved with now, I moved to Maysot, which is further down the border. It's a much larger town. It's the main gateway between Thailand and Burma. I started working for the Burma Children Medical Fund, which is based out of the Maytow Clinic, and I was there for about two years. And what sort of issues were there for the children coming into that hospital or clinic? The Burma Children Medical Fund was established basically out of need around 2006. An Australian nurse called Kanchana Thornton had been working at the Maytow Clinic since about 2001, and she'd noticed that a lot of children and adults who'd come to the Maytow Clinic for treatment they had quite serious conditions. They were not able to be treated. There was nowhere for them to get surgery, so they could only have their symptoms treated and they couldn't get the surgery they needed to save their lives. So they ended up being severely incapacitated or they died prematurely. Kanchana started working with some doctors at the clinic in 2004 and then from 2006 she took over the role of heading up the Burma Children Medical Fund. Basically, any child that comes into the Maytow Clinic and even into local Thai hospitals, uh, some of the refugee or migrant population, if they come in with a very serious medical condition like uh, congenital heart disease, other conditions like spina bifida, they cannot be treated on the border. So they get referred to Burma Children Medical Fund, which then um, interviews the patient and arranges transport to Chiang Mai so that the child can get treatment and they also provide support services for the family, so for a carer to be with them while they're in, in Chiang Mai. And they organise logistics and make sure that any issues around language, linguistic barriers are also looked after so that um, the child can be treated and go back to Burma or return to their community on the Thai-Burma border. Another influential woman in that area is Dr Cynthia Mong. Can you tell yeah. us her story? Well, firstly, Dr Cynthia has quite a 
uh, well, I'd like to call it a bit of a cult following in Australia, but maybe it's just people that are sort of into Burma. She won the Sydney Peace Prize in 2013, but um, Dr Cynthia Israel's story started in 1988 with the pro-democracy uprising in Burma. She fled to the border with many, many thousands of other people and when she was in Maysot, she set up a small clinic to start treating people that were fleeing from the, the conflict and violence in Burma. During that first year, I think her small clinic treated around 2,000 people. And today, the Maytow Clinic has just opened a brand new clinic. And uh, it's treating, I think it's around definitely over 100,000 people a year. Where does the funding come from? Funding comes from, at the moment, it's, um, I'm not 100% sure. AFIDA has been involved with the Maytow Clinic since 1996 and over the years has helped Maytow Clinic out with funding. But Maytow Clinic also gets funding from USAID and for a period of time the Maytow Clinic was supported by AusAid, which is now DFAT. And AFIDA's role in currently supporting Maytow Clinic is through um, our monthly global justice program. So we've got a lot of people in Australia in the union movement who are supporting the work of Dr Cynthia by making donations to, Maytow, to AFIDA, which then go to the Maytow Clinic. Can you give us a picture of the clinic? The Maytow Clinic that I worked at, it was in Maysot. It was just on the outskirts of town. So Maysot itself is about three kilometres from the Thai-Burma border. So the border itself is a river. So the Maytow Clinic, it was probably maybe a five-minute ride in a, in a local taxi or on a motorbike from the clinic to the border. So that's why its location was quite useful for refugees or migrants crossing the border to access the clinic and to get medical treatment. Maysot is quite a large town. It's a sprawling town. The clinic itself was sort of very close to the, the local airport and the, the big bus station. But that was the clinic I know. The new Maytow Clinic has recently moved and I haven't seen the new Maytow Clinic but the clinic that I was based at, um, it sort of grew from one tiny shed to a sprawling maze of buildings um, made from concrete with you know, tin roofs, all sorts of different roofs. It was like a rabbit warren, basically. And uh, if you were sort of walking into the clinic for the first time, it's, it's quite easy to see people become overwhelmed with you know, trying to find where they were. And there's just a maze of, of different alleyways and... Uh, there's people everywhere, basically. So it was quite chaotic, but it was also very functioned very well and it served the um, primary healthcare needs of a, a very vulnerable population, and it still does. And I would imagine the new one is quite different to that. Yeah, I've seen photographs of the new one and it looks quite impressive, so I look forward to getting over and having a look at the new clinic when I have an opportunity to. What was your role in the old clinic? That was when I was working for Burma Children Medical Fund oh, okay. based right. at the Maytow Clinic. So we're based there because... Most of the referrals to the Burma Children Medical Fund came from the Maytow Clinic, so they both work very closely together. My role at Burma Children Medical Fund was working, basically doing um, patient interviews. So I would sit with an interpreter and a translator and I would interview each patient that came on to the caseload and we would sit with the carer, the primary carer um, of the child and we would find out about their background, about the child's medical history and find out anything else that we needed to know about the family situation to assess their ability to travel and to get the medical attention that they needed. Children accessing treatment wasn't just a matter of them coming onto the program and, and going to Chiang Mai. It was often they had to wait a fairly long time to 
be scheduled for surgery and so if they went back home into Burma, it um, can often be quite unpredictable, like they might have lived in a, a conflict zone, so it was important to get all of that information to make sure that we could contact them when it was time for their surgery and make sure that they were able to get back to the Maytow Clinic so that they could be, be transferred onto to Chiang Mai to get the surgery that they needed. And of course the new clinic, like the old one, is, is not just for children, it's for just about everybody. Oh, absolutely. The new clinic, or well, the old clinic and the new clinic, the clinic, the services at the clinic haven't changed. The buildings have been updated. Uh, the location has changed. It functions very much like any hospital. It has a maternity ward, inpatient, outpatient departments, all the services that you would expect from fully functioning hospital pretty much anywhere in the world, only with much more limited resources. Now, this is situated in, in Thailand. There were problems with the military in previous times. Is is that okay now? The Thai military? Hmm. It's always a bit unpredictable, especially at the... I mean, at the moment, the current government in Thailand is a military government uh, after the military coup. The situation on the, the border in Maesot, for the organisations that I've worked for, has been fairly stable in terms of dealing with the Thai military. They're prone to change their policies quite often and uh, it's very difficult to predict when that will happen but um, for BCMF for example it's been operating since 2006 so more than 10 years and there's a high level of trust between the local Thai authorities and with Kan Chanathon who runs the organisation and that's sort of due to her scrupulous record keeping and a very strong spirit of cooperation I guess which um, is more informal than formal so that ensures that the children are able to be transported from Mesot to Chiang Mai quite safely. And I think a lot of other organisations work in the same capacity. If they have a good working relationship with the local Thai authorities, then they're able to be able to get on with their work on a day-to-day basis without too much interference. What do you know about the situation across the border in Burma with... It's supposed to be democracy now. Some people question that word of democracy. Yeah, look, that's a very difficult question to answer. It's still very early days. When Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy took office this year after winning the election last year, I think there was a strong sense of hope was in the air. People were sort of overwhelmed with throwing away the the shackles of a military dictatorship and moving on to a, a brighter future. But unfortunately, that's not been a very... It's not going to be a very quick transition, so... I think the the road ahead is going to be a long one and a very difficult one. So it's it's um, a bit difficult to to sort of give you an answer as to how I feel about what democracy in Burma looks like now. But we do know that you know just reading any media on Burma at the moment, it's it's very clear that there's still many many issues facing Burma and facing the National League for Democracy that they need to address. You know, they include religious tensions are on the rise. Um, there's a lot of fragile, very fragile ceasefire agreements in place. There's been an escalation of conflict in Shan State, which is in the north of Burma. This month, I think, John Kerry visited Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma. She turned around and said that Burma just needs some space to deal with you know, issues like the Rohingya issue, which is causing a lot of tension, and I think it's, um, a lot of people are criticising her, her uh, lack of action on that issue. In terms of democracy, it's, it's difficult for me to answer that question. I think only time will tell. Well, with the violence and the uncertainty, does that mean that people are still coming across the border to places like Mesot? Mesot 
Not so much. The situation in Shan State in northern Burma, historically the refugees have crossed over into Thailand, but the more recent flare-ups of tension, of conflict, there's been airstrikes against civilians, but mainly in northern Shan State. So that's seen around 100,000 internally displaced people cross over into China, actually. So it's causing issues not so much in Thailand, but uh, on the, the China side of the border. I'm wondering about the freedom of NGOs such as AFIDA to work in Thailand at the moment. AFIDA isn't on the ground in Thailand. AFIDA uh, is based here in Australia and we support organisations that are working on the ground on the Thai-Burma border. I guess nothing has really changed for our projects that we support on the Thai-Burma border. They are still doing what they do best, which is supporting the local communities that they've been supporting for quite a long time. We've been working with a lot of these organisations for you know, around 20 years. Over the years, we've seen them implement different different aspects of their their programs and um, watch them support their communities, and they know best. So we just sort of stand from afar and, and help them and stand in solidarity with them as they support their local communities. And what's happening with the Karen Women's Association now? They still doing what they've always done. They're um, a membership organisation with around 50,000 women as members. They sort of stepped up, KWO stepped up as an organisation to fill in positions that were traditionally held by men that have been left vacant by men that have been involved in the civil war. So KWO now is a very strong, has a very strong focus on training and capacity building for women that enables women to play a central role in community decision-making and political processes. So they continue doing their work. Can you talk about a couple of the, the people that you've worked with over the years in those situations and and maybe people that you've met many years later and found out how their lives have changed since they were in those clinics and camps? I mean, I came to the Thai-Burma border to be involved with the Thai-Burma border in 2009. So my history with the people and the organisations on the border is relatively new in the scheme of things. I will talk about one woman who is, she's incredible. Her name is Cham Tong. She's a Shan teacher and human rights activist. Cham Tong was born in Shan State in Burma and when she was six years old, her family left Burma and came to Thailand to escape the conflict. They settled in a refugee camp and when she was 16, she started becoming a very active human rights activist so a year later, at the age of 17, she was addressing the United Nations and raising a situation that faced a lot of women in Shan State, and I believe to this day still face women in Shan State, and that is the use of rape as a weapon of war in Burma. In 2005, she then went to the White House and she sat with, I think it was George Bush at the time, and she now heads up a school in, that's based in Thailand, but it's for um, young people from Shan State so it's called School for Shan State Nationalities Youth, which is a bit of a mouthful. And Chan Tong now empowers young people from all over Shan State to become advocates for social and political change through the school, which runs a very comprehensive social justice education program. Chan Tong um, still heads up the school. She's very active in empowering youth and her passion is teaching young people to become advocates and to speak up for, for their communities. And I'd imagine there were children, either boys or girls, who came to those centres very young and, and very ill who many, many years later have come back to help run those clinics? So, yeah, that's correct. When I was involved with Burma Children Medical Fund, I was only there for two years, uh, which is relatively short. But during those two years, 
working directly with Kanjana, she would introduce me to patients that would come back to visit her. I would have the opportunity to sort of sit with them and their families to do a, a post-operation interview. So usually post-operation interviews would happen sort of directly after the surgery, but sometimes with situations that arise, you know, it could be years later that they come back to the clinic and you can finally interview them and find out how they've got along. I did get to meet quite a number of children who had pretty much grown up as part of the BCMS, Burma Children Medical Fund family, and uh, who would come back again and again and again to visit Kanchana at the clinic and to, to say hello to all the, the medics and staff that had treated them at the clinic. So, it, yeah, it was, it was quite good to and inspiring to see and uh, that relationship of past people on the program keep coming back to, to say to pop in and say hello and to sort of always grateful for, for the help that they were given. When was your last trip there? My last trip there was, I went back three times in 2012, so unfortunately I haven't been back over since, but um, yeah, I'm due for a trip anytime soon. How can people help? I guess the easiest way for people to help on the Thai Burma border is to, to jump on the AFIDA website, the Unionate Abroad AFIDA and to join a feeder and uh, help us help people on the border. Um, people can make a, a monthly contribution to sort of projects in greatest need on the Thai Burma border or if they're particularly taken by any one of our projects like Burma Children Medical Fund or Karen Women's Organisation, if they're interested in children or women, they can directly contribute to those organisations. Thanks, Katie. Thank you very much, Jan. And that's, that's Katie Camarina from... AFIDA, the trade union aid agency based in Sydney, talking about work on the Thai-Burma border. You are listening to 3CR and it's coming up to 25 minutes past 5 o'clock. Ladies and gentlemen, this panel is now on air. In July 1976, from an old warehouse in High Street, Armadale, 3CR Community Radio hit the airwaves heralding 40 years of independent, community-owned and controlled radio. This will be the first station owned and operated by a cooperative of community organisations on a Melbourne-wide basis. This is 3CR. As the status quo of old media is challenged, as publications come and go, in a country with the highest concentration of media ownership in the world, 3CR continues to broadcast radical, insightful radio 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We're not talking about land rights, we're talking about sovereignty. That's why it's important for us to be at the 10 Embassy. From the protests against the Franklin River Dam to the 1998 waterfront dispute, from the east-west tunnel picket to the Aboriginal 10 Embassy, the history of 3CR is dynamic and passionate and ongoing. I was born here. I will die here. I am not moving. So as we celebrate 40 years in 2016, we ask you, our volunteers, listeners and supporters, to join in in saying... Happy birthday, 3CR! In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. 
years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Which base provides key information for every US drone strike, played a crucial role in Iraq and Afghanistan wars, as well as providing targeting and surveillance information for the Israeli Defence Force? Star Wars. The Empire Strikes Back. War is terrorism. It's the Pine Gap Joint Defence Facility, located just 20 kilometres from Alice Springs on Aranda Country, and this year marks 50 years of its inglorious existence. Come and join the Closed Pine Gap protest near the gates of the base from September 26 to 30th. For all the details, head to closedpinegap.org. Getting quick to book your early bird bus ticket from Melbourne for just $200 return. That's closedpinegap.org. See you there. Closed Pine Gap is a 3CR supporter. is terrorism? Earlier today, I spoke with Dr Tim Anderson, representing the group Hands Off Syria. I asked him first whether it's possible to link the failed coup in Turkey which resulted in the removal of many of the top brass in the military to the invasion of northern Syria and yesterday the invasion of northern Iraq by Turkey. There's a broad connection, but I wouldn't say there's a direct connection there because the dissatisfaction with Erdogan and his government, of course, is pretty deep and it's shown by the fact that a large number of people were involved in the coup, the attempted coup and a large number, a very large number have been arrested, including people who had nothing to do with it, but basically people were not seen as part of his Muslim Brotherhood project. So you've got school teachers, judges, all sorts of people apart from military and police who have been sacked or arrested, basically. So there's that broad dissatisfaction going on there with Turkey's role in the region, in the war and the destabilisation that's causing within Turkey. What's in it for him now? What's he after? He's always had this ambition to be a type of regional leader you know they say a neo-ottoman you know new type of caliph in the region with through his muslim brotherhood links and the connections he's made with the gulf states in particular and um, of course his link into nato where he's been collaborating with nato not without contradictions of course because the as you mentioned the the recent invasion of part of northern syria is linked into a sort of compromise that seems to be happening between Turkey and Washington in the sense that Washington has been trying to use part of the Syrian Kurds to get a foothold, keep a foothold in Syria, and yet they're regarded as serious enemies by Erdogan. So there's a compromise going on, part of which was apparently Turkey seizing that small town on the west of the Euphrates and trying to stop the Kurds moving across to North Aleppo and the other areas where his Islamist groups are currently at war with the the Syrian forces. But what about the Turkish Air Force attacks in northern Iraq? Well, that's rather more complicated because 
Erdogan government has a type of relationship, I'm not sure how solid it is, but a, a commercial relationship, a relationship with real interests with the, the Barzani regime, that is to say one part of the Kurdish population in Iraq, which has been collaborating with the US to weaken Damascus and has been involved in this dirty oil business with ISIS channeling up through, through Turkey and being sold you know, to other parts of the region from Turkey. Yet there's part of the Kurdish population that's against that and is more friendly with, with uh, Baghdad. So it's rather complicated what's going in the north of Iraq at the moment. Is the US losing control of Erdogan or did they ever have control of him? They have a very close relation, collaborative relationship with him in which he, like all of the rest of them, are subordinate. But on the other hand, you have to bear in mind that Turkey is a much bigger country than and more substantial nation than, say, any of the Gulf states, which are not really nations, really. They're, they're little principalities with monarchies controlling them, basically. So Turkey's a very big country, and it has some weight in the region. But nevertheless, the US has been driving these wars completely. We know it's obvious that they drove the Iraq war and the strategy after it, and it's obvious also that they've been driving the dirty war against Syria through the proxy armies. It just happens that Turkey has emerged as the the major partner in that process, more important than the Saudis or, or Qatar even, and that border with Syria is now the biggest obstacle to ending the war there because of the um, the strong Erdogan regime support for all of those jihadist groups. Well, where does it fit in that they that Erdogan accused the US of being part of the coup by giving sanctuary to the other leader who is now in exile in the US? Yes, there's another perhaps somewhat, I don't know whether the moderate's the right word, it's probably not the right word, but another Islamist type of leader, uh, Gulen, who's got a refuge in, he's a, he's a very old man, he's got refuge in the, in the US, but there are very strong Gulenist movement links throughout Turkey still, and they've called it a state within the state in the past. Can I just ask you first how he got to the US and why he's in the US? Well, he's in some sort of political asylum situation, effectively, because you know Erdogan wants to string him up. Basically, he he regard Erdogan regards the Gulenists as his biggest internal threat. Yes, I'm wondering why the US would give him sanctuary. Because the because the Gulen, he, Gulen has always worked with the US and right. with, with the CIA, you know. So there's a, basically the US has been has worked with both sides of of that divide in in Turkey. And there are some that are very anti-Gulenist. But on the other hand, you've got a lot of secular Turks too who are anti-Erdogan. So I've seen a lot of people have accused the Gulenists of being behind that coup and it's sort of the accepted wisdom, but I haven't really seen any strong evidence for it, frankly. And um, well, there were some secular slogans associated with the coup, basically, that they were anti-Islamist or anti-Muslim Brotherhood. I mean, that's what the sacking of school teachers and judges is all about, that... It's not that they were involved in the coup, it's that Erdogan has taken the coup as an opportunity to basically purge the state of all the people that aren't part of this, his Muslim Brotherhood project and put in his cronies, basically, to try and change the whole state. And, of course, there's a lot of, there's a lot of resistance to that. But I haven't seen strong evidence that the Gulenists were indeed uh, responsible for that coup. Um, but nevertheless, that's what Erdogan believes, and Erdogan also knows that Gulen is very close to the US, so therefore... That's undermined his confidence in the relationship with the US. But nevertheless, you know, this is politics, and you see Erdogan, you know, apologising to Putin for reasons that are not to do with 
personal history, basically. So um, it's difficult to read exactly what's going on in Turkey for those sorts of reasons. I mean, or say the Turkish-Russian relationship, what's going on there. Obviously, Erdogan wanted to mend that, but you know how far it goes and wh- how we read the double speak that's going on there is a bit tricky. So in a sense, is he playing the US off with Russia because that was the first place he went to? Yeah, that's part of it. I think that's part of it, that he's trying to say, look, I've got other options there if you're going to be hostile to me in that sort of way. And, you know, he's upset with the Europeans too that they didn't really come out and condemn the coup. Initially, they started trying to preach to Erdogan about human rights, and there's there's plenty of things to preach about there, I suppose. But so he was, you know, upset about that. Well, they almost finished him off, basically, him and his government. But... Um, I think it's still quite unstable in Turkey as a result of that. You know, there are clearly very deep divisions, yet after that he's made it as an opportunity to deepen his purging of the of the Turkish state and to seize the opportunity to try and, well, on the one hand, keep a, a, his own foot in Syria, but at the same time block the U.S. move to try and... The U.S. has clearly tried to incite uh, Syrian Kurds to make some secessionist moves in parts of northern Syria which are not going, to fire, not going to succeed, basically. And he, uh, John Kerry has admitted that you know, the whole process of the UN has committed itself to the, the integrity of, of Syrian territory and so on. But, you know, once again, the US is playing a double game there, but it's a double game in this case, which is irritating Turkey or the Turkish government. Go back a couple of weeks to Syria, a young boy sitting in an orange seat in an ambulance... You believe the scene and the video were staged. What can you say to convince listeners that this is true? It's staged in the sense it's not necessarily the case that the uh, the boy wasn't hurt, although there are people that are saying that they think that was makeup was used. There's been a lot of previous cases where the publicity from the, the Islamist, the jihadist groups, have been staged with people with makeup and, and acting and so on, people pretending to be dead coming back, and there's a lot of video on that. So there is a, one influential analyst was looking at it and saying that the boy's injuries didn't appear to be real. But let's put that aside for the moment and assume that he was he was hurt and went to hospital. He's in a, an ambulance that's presented by the White Helmets to the jihadist groups there. The White Helmets are effectively an al-Qaeda support group funded by the US government and the UK government as well as donations to provide medical assistance for the jihadist groups, particularly in northern Syria. What made the, the scandal over this photo was really though the way it was the way it was brought out. First of all, there, there are many, many children who are hurt in, in Aleppo, but the Western media has only looked at the, the jihadist held part of Aleppo, which has about 10% of the civilians in Aleppo these days, basically. There was a a story recently about the last garden in Aleppo or something. It's the last garden in a part held by the Al-Qaeda groups, basically. They've said that there was only the last um, paediatric doctor in Aleppo. There's there's several hundred paediatric doctors in Aleppo. They just ignored the government-held part of Aleppo just as they ignored the government of Syria. So what came out about the photo of that boy, Omran, was that the photograph was actually taken by a guy who calls himself a media activist and is closely associated with a, a jihadist group called Al-Zinki. Now, Al-Zinki are the ones who cut off the head publicly of a Palestinian boy, a 12-year-old boy, just some weeks earlier. In fact, it looks like the photo of little Omran was taken before they cut off the head of the little Palestinian boy. The 
same people. So, and on his Facebook site, this photographer who calls himself the media activist, and indeed receives money from the US from something called the Aleppo Media Center, is written all over the social media. What wonderful people Al Zinke are, and it's the best time of his life, and they're his heroes. And he had, until the scandal broke, pictures of the Al Zinke martyrs, ones that had been killed, on his Facebook page. So that was the scandal, really, that a person deeply embedded with jihadists who were proud of cutting off the head of a child and putting it on social media were then pretending to be humanitarians and tugging at the heartstrings of Western people because they put up a picture of a, a boy with a, with a cut head. Supposedly the result of Russian bombing, although apparently that didn't, didn't happen in that part of Aleppo either. No Western media will pick up on the issue of the white helmets? No, um, they, even though they're a huge contradiction, they've been exposed seriously for almost a year now. They claim that they're non-partisan and not funded by governments. And the, the US, what's he called, the foreign minister, the, the foreign minister of the, sorry, the UK, has been down in Gaziantep wearing one of their helmets, you know, in southern Turkey as they hand over money to them. The US State Department has admitted funding them for millions of dollars. And they claim in their propaganda about, you know, the, the real heroes... All of the people appear to be young jihadists, basically, you know, wearing the, in, in the style of the jihadists, uh, off clothes and, and beard with their own moustache and so on. But the Western media has run a, a very monolithic line on this, basically. Anything that contradicts the war line gets censored very, very quickly. It's quite shocking to me, uh, even though I've seen a lot of wars, to see how incredibly censorial the Western media is. And in particular, I should say the liberal Western media sources like the New York Times and the UK Guardian, for example. Remarkably sensorial. What's going to happen with Aleppo? Aleppo's being retaken gradually by the Syrian forces, the alliance, the Syrian alliance, with, which includes, as you know, you know, Russia, the Russian Air Force, the um, Hezbollah, Iranian forces, Iraqi forces. So they're gradually taking it back, but it's a terrible battle with lots of losses on both sides, but it's clear that the jihadists are losing in Aleppo. And in Damascus itself, the suburb has been retaken. In Damascus, the suburbs are, are also um, strongly being drawn back into the into the, the Syrian sphere. But there's funny sorts of compromises that are going on. For example, the Daraya at the area of south, um, an area in in southern Damascus that was there was a huge surrender just recently, and civilians were moved out to the west of Damascus, and the fighters some light arms but none of their medium or heavy arms were shipped out bussed out to Idlib in the north with their other jihadists so there's there's a funny sort of compromise going on they were being they're being pushed up into the north but there's still a war going on in, in Idlib as well and Hama as well as um, at the same time as in um, Aleppo but there's now a surrender coming up in Moadamia the western the far western part of Damascus too so basically that's left fairly isolated Duma, which has always been the centre of the jihadists around Damascus. Damascus city itself has been relatively safe all this year. There's been very few bombings in Damascus city itself, and almost all of them in the past came from the Duma East Ghouta area. Now Duma is very isolated, and the, uh, the liberation of Daraya in particular, which has been the site of basically guerrilla war for the last four years at least. There's some terrible massacres in Daraya back in 2012, for example. So 
basically the Syrian government and the Syrian forces are gradually recovering all of those areas around Damascus too. So they're making gains. And, by the way, there's still fighting going on in the east too in Deir ez and Raqqa. There's, they're attacking ISIS over there too, and ISIS is being gradually wound back in the eastern part and some of the country areas, eastern Homs and around Deir ez so there are slow but steady gains being made by the Syrian alliance across the country in Damascus, in Aleppo, in the northern part of Syria too. And that's, you know, everyone who is a military analyst sees that. And that's why the scrabble for some foothold, some remaining foothold in far northeast Syria or along the northern border with Turkey is, it's, that's attracting a lot of attention because the big powers, the outside powers are trying to rescue what they can from the situation before the Syrian alliance liberates the whole country. And in that eastern area, they're being supported by whom? The rebels? ISIS. And who is ISIS these days? ISIS is just, frankly, ISIS is one of a number of jihadist groups that have been backed by the US and their allies. Nothing more and nothing less, really. There was a failure to merge uh, of the two al-Qaeda groups um, some four years back, and it was, uh, you know, there was this myth created that there were these moderates on one side and ISIS on the other. Actually, they practiced the same sort of tactics and they have the same ideology as all of the others, including all of the Free Syrian Army groups who declared their commitment to Jabhat al-Nusra, the other internationally prescribed terrorist group. They said, we are all Jabhat al-Nusra, dozens of them, uh, dozens of those groups back in 2012. There's never been any real ideological difference or tactical difference. And uh, the, Syrian, the ordinary Syrian people, Iraqi people, don't really make that sort of distinction. But there are those distinctions and there's jealousy between those groups, you know, from time to time. But basically ISIS is under attack now from on the Iraqi side. Maybe we're not hearing so much about that, but the Iraqi army has been, and the popular forces there have been taking back important parts of Iraq. And um, that's left really Raqqa, which is subject to air raids still, but fairly, relatively untouched except for the air raid, more heavy fighting going on in Deir Ezzur. But the support that ISIS gets has been mainly in recent times from the Saudis and from Turkey. And also, of course, not forgetting the recruiting, because they're largely a foreign, a foreign group. There have been some estimates on how many foreigners are in them in recent times. But um, basically they're... And they're also on, on the eastern side of Aleppo too. There's some fighting going on they attempted some offences later. But basically, they're another one of several jihadist groups that have been backed by the US and their allies. There's no anti-Syrian government jihadist group in Syria that is not backed by Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the US and Israel. That group, and to some extent Britain and France, that group has been backing all of them. So we shouldn't pay too much attention to the distinctions between them. Al-Zinki, no no one had heard much about uh, Nuruddin Al-Zinki until recent times, but they're one of the what some people call 31 different flavours of those sorts of jihadists. I'd imagine that with the defeats that have been happening over the past months, that recruiting might be becoming more difficult from outside countries, getting yeah. young people to come and put yeah, their lives so. on the line. That's right, you'd think so. Even if even fanatics are hard to recruit into a war which is clearly failing, that's why the propaganda war is so important still, I think. I mean, the Turkish move, for example, on that on Jarablus on the, on the border, that small town on the border to try and stop the attempt to create a Kurdish zone going going west of the Euphrates was really almost a bloodless coup there. Basically, it was simply pushing out ISIS and putting in al Zinki and some of the others. And there was very little fighting there because the sponsors, 
principally Turkey in this case, but with the agreement of the US, had more or less agreed to substitute ISIS for, uh, to substitute al Zinki and some of the other, what they still try and call moderate rebels, for ISIS there. So it happened relatively, relatively smoothly. And uh, the Syrian Kurds, the YPG, lost about eight villages. But that, again, it was more or less orchestrated by the US and Turkey for, for, the, for Turkey's own reasons. The U.S. elections are coming closer and closer. Is there concerns that um, if Clinton gets in, which is likely, that things could turn worse? I don't really think so because the Syrian government itself and the Syrian president has said this on a couple of occasions. They don't really take too seriously what's said in campaigns because the experience of every country that has faced U.S. aggression is that what they say and what they do is not always really the same thing because they're masters of doublespeak in Washington. And what they say in an election campaign really, for a start, there's not that much difference between the Republican and the Democrat administrations when it comes to the sorts of wars that they wage. There is, of course, always a historic opportunity for a new administration to, to change the terms of the game, basically. And I would be you know, well, if you looked at wars in the past, you'd see sometimes they've got worse and sometimes they've, they've got better. In this case, there's clearly a failing war going on in Syria. But the problem from the US point of view is that failure in Syria means failure in Iraq also. They step back from the mark with Iran. Remember the, all the aggression against Iran for many years? Then they put it on the back burner more or less. But if they have retreated from the confrontation with Iran, if they lose comprehensively in Syria, they're losing also in Iraq. So their whole regional gambit is really a failure. So it's a huge crisis in terms of the, the ambitions of the US to have what it called a decade ago a new Middle East under the Bush administration. So that obviously causes some heartburn, let's say, for the, the hawks, and, and this time it includes the State Department hawks, the ones that back these humanitarian wars because um, they're not very good at accepting defeat. And of course the prize would have been Iran, but that's gone totally. Iran's gone totally. Syria is going very rapidly. But as I say, if they lose Iraq after all the effort they put into Iraq and loss of life and whatever and expense and so on, then see Syria is really the turning point for their whole regional project there. They got perhaps overambitious after seeing how relatively easy it was to destroy a small state like Libya but Syria has been very different but Syria, and Syria has those wider implications they'll never be able to get back and mount a campaign against Iran they'll lose control of Iraq Israel is very upset for for those very same reasons Hezbollah is has been directly fighting because it's directly involved in all of this and effectively the end result of it is totally counterproductive. They went into Syria to try and smash that link between Iran, Hezbollah and the Palestinian resistance. And they've ended up strengthening it and, and uh, losing their grip on Iraq, which is now firmly embedded with Iran and Syria. And while the focus is on those countries in the Middle East there, there's virtually unreporting of what's happening in, in Yemen, where the US is promoting yes, with um, Saudi Arabia. That's very true. And now you see that Yemen is now building its relationships with Iraq, you know. So it's the worst of all strategic scenarios for the U.S. because they effectively they're, 
their allies. I mean, Israel has been relatively untouched. You know, it's helped the jihadist groups in the south there, but the Saudis are now extended in a way and losing in a way that they, they haven't before. The Saudis have cooperated in every way that they can. They've pumped extra oil to try and undermine Russia and Venezuela. And now, militarily, they're being beaten by the, the poorest of all of the Middle Eastern countries who are just ferocious fighters. Uh, the, Yemen, the Yemenis have... Um, the popular forces and what's effectively the government of Yemen now has invaded Saudi Arabia in parts and taken over parts of Saudis. The Saudis can only respond by bombing because they haven't got effective ground forces there except for some ISIS, Al-Qaeda-like groups that they, they send in there. But they're not, really, they're not really doing very well. And now, what, again, what they've encouraged, similar to Syria, is that the Yemenis are now reaching out for some support from Iraq and from they'll eventually uh, end up having a stronger relationship with Iran, and that's exactly what the U.S. didn't want. But the U.S., when they went in to overthrow Saddam, who was the enemy of Iran, the enemy of Syria, have now created this problem for themselves, and they, they should have seen it coming, basically, that, um, that, the, that they're making good neighbours out of people in the region, and that's to their detriment. Well, with the American policy of changing the, the Middle East, is the... And still is the elephant in the room Israel? Yes, in many respects it is. And, of course, the relationship between Israel and the Saudis has got very close in recent times. So it's, it's brought that sort of contradiction to the surface, you know, the idea that there was some sort of Arab solidarity, Arab meaning including the Gulf monarchies and including the Arab League, which the, which the Gulf monarchies dominate. Now it's much more plain that Israel and the Saudis are and Turkey, for that matter, at least under Erdogan, but Turkey can change because Turkey is a, a much bigger country than, than the Erdogan government. Yeah, Israel has been out of the picture. I mean, they haven't been attacked by any of the jihadist groups. They've been supporting all of them. They were very upset, remember, by the agreement that the, the US and the European powers did with um, Iran to take Iran, you know, to lower the heat, to put Iran on the back burner, more or less, because... Um, you know, they always saw Iran as the, the powerful state that was their biggest potential enemy and the one providing support to the Palestinians through the smaller state, Syria, and through Hezbollah in Lebanon. Now Iran is in a much stronger position. There's an investment boom going, going on in Iran there. There's a lot of things moving ahead to strengthen Iran's position in the world. And with the loss in Syria, I mean, Israeli analysts, um, the head of their military intelligence and some of their think tanks have been saying they're very alarmed at the idea of the war in Syria ending with the Syrian forces defeating ISIS and the other groups, basically. So they are, they are, they've been sitting back more or less um, almost untouched by this um, war. When I say this war, really, I think we should think of this as a single war. There's been 15 years of war in the Middle East from Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria. It's one war in many respects. It's been a an attempt by Washington to control the entire region. And in the end, it's failing, and Israel realises that strategically Israel is going to be made far more vulnerable by this. And the human and all other costs of this folly. Well, terrible costs, you know, but it hasn't been paid by Israel. But Israel sees that, that coming effectively. It sees that it's alarmed that it's going to end up in a worse position as a result of this conflict, particularly how the, the Syrian war has backfired on on their side of things, on the NATO Gulf Council 
Israel axis, basically. There's been terrible costs across the, the whole region. Um, I mean, millions of people killed and, and maimed from Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Yemen. But, you know, the war strategically is not panning out as that US-led axis wanted. And in the end, it's going to be a very different sort of Middle East. We see in a post-Washington Middle East is going to be quite different to the one that was planned. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Jan. And that's Dr Tim Anderson, who is a member of the group Hands of Syria and also a senior lecturer in political economy department at the University of Sydney. I had planned on playing another part of the interview with Singh about private prisons, which was part of the sewer program last month, but I've realised that it would go over time, two or three minutes, so I've decided to hold it back to play on the program next week. So we'll be going off very soon. Have you ever wanted to write songs about important issues and help change the way people think about them? Change the World with Your Song is a songwriting competition designed to do just that, built around the four themes of environment, social justice, war and peace and political satire. It has age categories from kids to adults. For more information about this national songwriting competition, go to changetheworldwithyoursong.com. A 3CR supporter. Uh, Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. It certainly is, and 3CR is a pretty tuneful place too. That's all for me for today. I will be back next week at 4 o'clock. Stay tuned in about three and four minutes to Dunbar Law and well, let's go out with Kutcher Edwards and the song is called Time Is All I Have. Bye for now. <laughs>